Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Welcome to Eloquentia perfecta ex machina, a podcast series devoted to the teaching of rhetoric and composition with and through a range of media, and focusing on the writing program at St. Louis University. On this podcast, we interview instructors about how and why they use multimodal approaches, and we have instructors interview other instructors about the nuts and bolts of particular tools and assignments. On this episode, episode 7, it's our pleasure to rebroadcast an audio essay by Abigail Lamke, who received her PhD here at St. Louis University. Abigail writes, When I was introduced to the Walter J. Ong S.J. Archival Collection at St. Louis University in 2008, I was a first-year doctoral student who knew little of Ong's scholarship. In the year I spent working in the collection, I became familiar with the stages of his scholarship and the turn of his life. But while I looked through all of his papers, read his correspondence, and glanced at his childhood photos, it was not until I listened to his recorded voice that I came to understand Ong as a cohesive human being. Listening allowed me to hear his humor, his warmth, and his humility in a way that was not present on a printed page. This audio essay presents excerpts from two of Ong's recorded lectures, offering a perspective into Ong, his scholarship, and the affordance of digital sound that can only be heard through listening. Hello, I am Abigail Lamke, and this is the Oral Aural Walter Ong, an audio essay for Harlot's Sonic Rhetorics issue. Many of us are familiar with the name Walter Ong, and some of us have read him, either pieces of his famous orality and literacy, or the often anthologized, the writer's audience is always a fiction. Ong's scholarship was concerned with sound, with the transition from oral culture to literate culture, and the way technology impacts communication. In that way, Ong was a forerunner of sonic rhetorics, because his scholarship suggests how sounded words, or oral-aural words, affect the relationship of language to knowledge. Many of us have read him, but how many have listened to him? I mean listen not metaphorically, but literally listened to his voice. In this audio essay, I contend that in listening to Walter Ong, we can expand our understanding of his scholarship and approach to sonic rhetoric. Listening to him, like when he talks about the electronic age, saying, And the electronic age is moving, curiously enough, into the world of sound once more. It's not moving back, because such movement is impossible. But in moving ahead, it is somehow or other breaking through into a new frontier of sound. Voice, in a different way now, is coming back into its own. Voice is coming back into its own. Walter Wrong said that in 1960. But voice has been ignored by rhetoric, except as a metaphor in text. If we treat voice as voice, however, how can listening to Walter Ong's voice expand our understanding of his scholarship? The central purpose of this audio essay is to argue that listening to Ong's oral presence reveals new and intriguing considerations of Ong and his scholarship. Foremost, the act of listening provides insight into how sonic rhetorics have their own set of intricacies and complications. In this audio essay, I integrate clips from two of Ong's recorded lectures, 
One, a recorded lecture for the Sounds of Learning series, taped in 1960, called "The End of the Age of Literacy," and the second, a live recording at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 1975, called "The Future of Literacy." Both of these lectures are hosted online in full. By the Walter J. Ong Archival Collection from St. Louis University, I've divided the audio essay into three sections. The first section, listening to Walter Ong, explores what is special in listening to the sonic qualities of Ong's recorded lectures. The second, Ong's sound arguments, presents Ong's arguments on the difference between sound and writing. And the third, evolving Ong. Discusses some ways sound has evolved from where Ong was in the electronic age to where we are now in the digital one. Part one: Listening to Walter Ong. I want to start with a sound truism. Listening is a different experience than reading. In listening to a voice, we make assumptions, we key into tonal inflections and volume shifts that indicate emphasis or Aspects of personality, and although the academic profession privileges written composition, for many academics, our professional life is more about an oral, oral presence than a printed one. A fruitful scholar writes a few books and a few dozen articles over the course of a career that reach an audience of hundreds, possibly thousands. But during the same career, the same scholar will deliver scores of presentations, teach on thousands of class days. And have uncountable academic conversations. Indeed, the oral oral presence is fundamentally central to an academic life. And while there is an emphasis on rhetorics of writing and reading, we pay less purposeful attention to the sonic rhetorics of speaking and listening. A rhetoric of sound is concerned with how an oral oral medium, like a lecture, affects the relationship of words to knowing. Because listening is a different experience than reading, a delivered lecture cannot be just like written prose. This is something Walter Ong certainly understood, and his lectures, although similar in thesis to his books and articles, are also very different experiences. For example, although you might have suspected that Walter Ong has a sense of humor from reading his prose, it is much more evident when listening to a live taped recording. Here. At a speech to an academic audience at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, he explains the idea of the oral-oral by making a jest at the phonemic system of Midwesterners. Instead of pre-literate, we should conceive of a culture without writing as an oral culture or an oral-oral culture, a voice and ear culture. And in case there are people here who are not Midwesterners with a pure phonemic system. Which, <coughs> We have here. I am saying O R A L hyphen A U R A L oral oral. Here he spices up the difference between television and film with a joke about hospitality. And even television is largely a sound device. Television is radio with pictures added. Sound movies are pictures with sound added, and they're two different things. You go to movies, you have television like company. Sometimes it's just as boring. <coughs> I'm not saying that Ong should have gone into stand-up, but he did have a sense of his audience, who seem grateful to have a little comic relief in a lecture called 
the future of literacy. Humor is one aspect encouraged in a sonic environment, where the audience can hear the inflection and the twist of language. Another insight we can get from listening to Walter Ong is from a non-live lecture, "The End of the Age of Literacy," which Ong taped and obviously meant to have edited before others listened to it. However, the archived version remains unedited. So when Ong flubs a line, the flub is included alongside the fix. We can hear him playing with basic word order. It was not the literacy test as such here. Here it was not the literacy test as such, but the ability to dispute effectively or correcting a simple misspeak. There is something basically shaky about the sound-space relationship, which the alphabet establishes or pretends to establish. There is something basically shaky about the sound-space relationship, which the alphabet establishes or pretends. To establish, unlike a rigorously edited printed manuscript, where we as readers only see the revised finished product, an oral oral presentation allows for more dynamism, and with dynamism, some mistakes. In print, Ong is forceful and confident, but in this oral artifact, we can hear the humanity inherent in the evanescence of oral language. Written prose is revised, sculpted. Oral language exists in the moment. And while it might aim for perfection, some cracks are excused. In sonic rhetorics, perfection in pronunciation is not demanded. No one can do it all in a first take, nor should we be able to. Knowing that even Walter Ong didn't have a first, knowing that even Walter Ong didn't have a perfect first take, is encouragement for all of us when we flub a line. Another quality of listening to a scholar is hearing the resonance of his or her voice. In Ong's voice, there is an evenness there, a definite Midwestern and early 20th century shape to the words. In listening to Ong, it is impossible to avoid that he was a man born and raised in Missouri in the early 20th century. It is in his voice; we can hear it. The first time I heard a recording of Walter Ong, his voice reminded me of Jimmy Stewart, especially in his folksy, intellectual roles like *The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance*. Why did you do it? Although Walter Ong is a little less dramatic. In listening to Walter Ong, we can hear him trying to communicate with his audience, deliver something new about the difference between sound and writing, while sounding approachable, likable, and sometimes folksy. This is his sonic. Ethos. For example, here in his discussion of images and spoken language, he offers a concept, followed by an example, followed by a joke. But do not pictures also reduce the evanescence of sound to permanence in space? No, they do not. For pictures do not reproduce the word; they reproduce an image which may have connected with it an indefinite number of words. Depending upon what language one is concerned with, if I draw a picture of a bird, a Spanish-speaking person will register to it by saying "pacaro." A French-speaking person will say "oiseau." A German-speaking person will say "vogel." Only an English-speaking person will say "bird," presumably because he knows no better. Ong's oral-oral approach is calculated to be steady, 
sociable, and accessible. He was not one to talk incomprehensibly in the haze of high theory. In listening to Ong, you hear more than just vocal tone and pitch inflection, but how he used his voice to craft a persona that was humorous, approachable, and overall human. Because listening is a different experience than reading, because a sonic rhetoric is a distinct set of concerns, in listening to Walter Ong, you can come to know him and his arguments in a new way. Part 2, Ong's Sound Arguments. For Ong, sound was what made up real words. Unlike writing, which imitated language in an artificial way, sound was special and natural for Ong. He listed many different aspects of sound in his lectures, but there is one phrase which is present in almost all of his lectures, as well as many of his interviews and essays. Indeed, it is in both of the recordings I am using for this audio essay. In 1960, he said it like this. Sound is the basis of all verbal communication. But sound is of its very essence, not merely perishable, but actually perishing, evanescent. It exists only when it is going out of existence. When I pronounce the word existence, by the time I have got to the tense at the end of the word, the sound exists is no longer there. I cannot have all the word present to me at once. There is no way to stop sound and still have sound. If I stop sound, suspend it, all I have is utter silence. A word, one individual word, cannot be present to us all at once much less can a longer utterance be. And in 1975, he said it this way. Sound is the basis of all verbal communication, isn't it? When you write, you're using a code that enables you to create a sound in your imagination or in actuality. But sound is of its very essence not merely perishable, but actually perishing, evanescent. Sound exists only when it is going out of existence. When I pronounce the word existence, by the time I get to the tense at the end of the word, the sound exists isn't there anymore. And it better not be, or you can't understand me. This used to worry St. Augustine a lot. It may worry you, but there's nothing you can do about it. The direct parallel between these quotes is obvious. But that parallel is not as compelling as why Ong returned to this saying not only in these two speeches, but in any lecture close to the topic. As someone who studied orality and sound, Ong was not afraid of repetition, of commonplaces, of repetition. He knew that a good nugget, which the existence nugget is, is something that an audience will appreciate, even if they've heard it before. And Ong scholars will repeat it themselves, 
as Lance Strait does in his centenary Pekakucha for Ong. But the spoken word is ephemeral. Ong says sound only exists as it's going out of existence. When I say the word existence, by the time I get to tense, exist is gone, never to be recovered. Pause a video and you get a still image. Pause an audio recording and all that you get is silence. And this nugget emphasizes what is so precious about sound. You cannot hold it in your fingers. You cannot pause it and keep it. Sound is evanescent. In going out of existence in the moment, it is ephemeral. Even when recorded, as these pieces of Ong are, they are still immaterial. And what is more, to be fully comprehended by most of us, they must be listened to in isolation. For instance, if I played the last three clips, all of which contain similar language, at the same time, it becomes massively confusing. But the sound is the basis of all verbal communication. By the time I have got to the tense, when I pronounce the word existence, this is not near as effective as listening in sequence. Writing is, of course, different. We could have all three quotes present at once to compare them word for word. You can look backward in writing or forward, but sound isn't like this. With sound, you have to listen to language in sequence. You have to be patient. For Ong, what was truly fascinating were the ways speaking and writing interacted and how that had changed across the centuries. He was fond of impressing this change upon his audience. He'd say, Cicero, we know, used to speak his orations first, ordinarily, and write them in their finished written form afterwards. Quite the opposite of what I have done with this taped lecture, which I have written out carefully before I speak it to you. In the audio essay you're listening to now, that procedure has changed further from that used by Ong. I wrote out a script beforehand, true, but only by listening, and then writing, then re-listening and revising, then recording and listening, and revising and re-recording. Then I edited audio clips with software programs that are themselves written entities, adding music composed by others, finally producing this audio file that you're listening to now. This is far from both Cicero's and Ong's process of composition, but in the end, it is another oral event. And oral events have their own texture, their own experience, as well as their own rhetoric, as the practice of listening to Walter Ong suggests. When we compare spoken and written words, Ong advises that the spoken word, a much more difficult thing to study, but a much more rewarding one. And not only are spoken and written words or textual and sonic rhetorics different, they change when technology changes. In ruminating on the future of communication and sound, Ong says, The future is already here. We've entered into a world of communication which we're only beginning to understand. Aristotle said that in his day, the Greeks had no word for literature. How he said that, if they didn't have a word for it, may be a something of a puzzle. But for a lot of the things that we're dealing with today, we don't have words either. We have an extremely complicated situation 
for all the past and all the present are interacting to produce the future. And I leave the future in your hands because, as I believe Marshall McLuhan has said, the future is a thing of the past. Part 3. Evolving Ong Ong generously left the future for those of us in the future, and part of this responsibility is to listen to him and to see how sound and sonic rhetoric has changed since. The dynamics of sound have changed in the digital age because digitization both freezes sound and makes it more malleable. While sound could be frozen into records or tapes when Ong delivered his lectures, it still existed in a static form, in a continuous or analog track. These were difficult to modify with much precision, especially without expertise, funds, or equipment. This is no longer the case. To see this change, let's consider a clause Ong put at the beginning of that taped recording at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 1975. I'd like to make one statement just as a matter of shopkeeping detail to keep myself from getting into trouble. I've given permission for this lecture to be taped. Quite all right with me if you play it any way you want, on the radio too, but I do not give permission for it to be transcribed in any form, in handwriting, typing, print, or any other graphic form. Otherwise, I might get into trouble. But Walter Ong, who would want to get you into trouble? Not I, certainly. But the trouble that I could do with a transcription is not near as much fun as what I can do now with your recording. I can edit it, either respectfully, as I have been doing so far, or more playfully. With a click of a button, I can make you sound like a chipmunk. I can make you echo, like you are shouting into a canyon. Quite all right, right, all right, 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 play it, any way you want, on the radio too. Or, as far as my admittedly minor editing skills allow, I can, horror of horrors, auto-tune you. Quite all right, 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 play it. Manipulating Ong is fun, but I do it more than just for the fun of it. Playing with Ong's now digitized lecture is evidence of how Ong could not foresee the future of sound. For Ong in 1975, an oral lecture, even a taped one, was a safe place. Writing was dangerous. Written words could be duplicated and it could get you into trouble. Oral, oral words, on the other hand, were safe. They wouldn't be spliced or taken out of context or manipulated in dangerous ways. This is certainly no longer the case. Sound is malleable now in ways that it simply wasn't in 1975. There is no longer safety in sound. For example, I can rearrange elements that Walter Ong said any way that I want. Father Ong, what do you think is the most important area of study? The rhetoric. And what should we be studying within the discipline of rhetoric? Sound. Right. Thanks for the advice. I, I agree with you. 
Hey, what do you think we should call this essay? Arrow, arrow, long. Hmm, what a good idea. My listeners will take my point. The malleability of digital sound recordings means I have the ability to take anything Walter Ong has recorded and do what I wish with it, using minimal technology and free software I downloaded from the internet. This sounds dire. It isn't as worrisome as all that. Just like composing in any other medium, composing using others' recorded voices has its great abilities and its great responsibilities. Sonic rhetorics have an ethics just as written rhetorics do. As a scholar who studies Walter Ong, I don't want to get him into trouble, nor do I want to get my own self into trouble. But I do want to call attention to the way sound has evolved and the new places for rhetorical scholarship. What respect do we owe those we reproduce with our own commentary? What position should be afforded them? I have no pat answers for you here. The resolution of that issue is something to reflect on further as the production of sonic pieces continue. What I want to suggest is that sound isn't safe like it was for Walter Ong in 1975. But that isn't a bad thing. What it means is that sound has a power it didn't have before. It is more and more an available means of persuasion in Aristotelian terms, as sonic artifacts like podcasts, audiobooks, audio tours, and other sound pieces are produced. Sound is less safe but it is becoming more powerful. Conclusion. The oral, aural, everybody. In listening to Walter Ong, we can come to understand his scholarship in a new way. Ong's lectures have the same central theses as his written work. But because speaking and listening are distinct and intricate practices, engaging with an oral, aural Walter Ong reveals the way he approached sonic rhetoric, not only in theory, but also in practice. In hearing him, we hear his warmth and his humor, his sincerity, but also his fallibility. We can hear where he falls short, where he flubs a line, where he coughs, where he underestimates sound and technology. Walter Ong is not the only late scholar with an oral collection. One implication of this audio essay is to encourage others to find the scholars you quote in textual documents and listen to them. Listen to their recorded voices. Reflect on what you hear. In listening to long pieces, you learn how people breathe, how they make jokes, how they recover from a flub line, how they interact with an audience. In listening to their active voices, they might come alive for you in a new way. Throughout this audio essay, I have hinted at the ways sonic rhetoric brings alive concepts of rhetoric and composition that have been metaphors, like voice, or tone, or rhythm. In sound, these are not metaphors. They are actual, active. Many scholars have written on rhetorical delivery and new media, working to revive the canon of delivery. But in presenting the importance of the oral, aural, and scholarly life in presentations, lectures, conversations, I'd argue that delivery was never unimportant. It was merely unexamined. In listening to Walter Ong in these lectures from 1960 and 1975, we can hear his delivery, how he makes vocal choices throughout. Ong certainly was examining his delivery and consciously crafting a vocal ethos. But then again, he was a Jesuit priest with classical training. 
as well as a homilist who frequently said mass. He was trained in delivery in a way many scholars now are not, but perhaps they should be now more than ever. If sound is becoming more powerful and more of what you say can and perhaps is being recorded and used elsewhere, it behooves everyone to begin to pay attention to oral delivery. My second implication is to ask you, my audience, what do you sound like? What does your audience hear in your voice? Whether you're an academic or not, it can be vitally important to hear your own oral aural self, to understand your own approach to sonic rhetoric. So record yourself and listen. And thank you for listening to me. This has been Abigail Lamke. Goodbye. If you'd like to get involved in this podcast series, to share an assignment or tool, or even to pitch an interview, please contact me, Nathaniel Rivers, at nathaniel.rivers at slu.edu. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina.